Hey, everybody. Welcome to the 71st episode in our World News Podcast. This is another two-week. Obviously, I missed last week, so this will go out for full release, actually Christmas morning. So I hope everybody has a good Christmas. I hope you're able to enjoy your time with your family and loved ones and stuff like that. Before we get started here, this episode, along with all of our other news episodes, are part of Atlas News. Check out the Lethal Minds Journal, a veteran and active duty publication focusing on foreign and military affairs, art, and culture. Take a look at the journal's Bolton from the Borderlands, a bi-weekly foreign affairs publication from multiple talented intelligence analysts and independent journalists. Head over to lethalmindsjournal.substack.com or Instagram at lethal.minds.journal to see more. Please consider supporting us on Patreon, patreon.com slash analyzeeducate, ko-fi, ko-fi.com slash analyzeeducate or analyzeeducate.substack.com. All those links can be found in the show notes below. And with that being said, we'll head into the news. All right, just a quick note here. You guys have helped us reach over 31,000 downloads and over 1,800 followers on Spotify. So thank you very much. I think that's a couple good stats to end the year off on. So thank you very much again for all the support you guys give to us. We'll look at Europe here. On December 23rd today, members of an Islamist terrorist cell were arrested in Germany and Vienna, Austria, and they are accused of planning to launch attacks in Cologne, Germany, Vienna, and Madrid, Spain. Possible targets include Christmas church services and New Year's celebrations. Police have implemented special measures to protect the Cologne Cathedral. Authorities in Austria have raised the terror warning level as well. Few details regarding the cell have been released in recent weeks, German authorities alone have arrested at least three foreign-born men planning to carry out December attacks against Christmas markets, church services, or synagogues. Two of those men are teenagers. Moving on to Poland, Polish President Andrzej Duda said that he will veto the 2024 spending bill proposed by the new pro-European Union government led by Prime Minister Donald Tusk, which recently came into power. Duda says that his veto would be in protest of Tusk's government recently taking control of government-run media and firing the directors of the state television channel and radio channels, as well as the state news agency. Tusk claims that this was done to reestablish independent media, and left-leaning outlets claim that the last government run by the Law and Justice Party used taxpayer-funded media, quote, as a propaganda mouthpiece that spread disinformation and xenophobic and homophobic content, end quote. The 24-hour state media news outlet was taken off the air on Wednesday after its head was fired. It has not been brought back. Duda and supporters of Law and Justice say that Tusk moves may have been illegal. Duda says that he will propose his own version of a budget instead. Tusk's proposal allocates $762 million for public media, while his party does hold a majority of 248 seats in the 460-seat parliament, it does not have the three-fifths majority needed to override a veto. Looking at Ukraine, on December 15th, local councillor Serhiy Batrin dropped what appeared to be three Soviet-made RGD-5 grenades during a local council meeting on a budget in Zakarpatia Oblast. Batrin is a member of the Servant of the People Party, the same party that President Volodymyr Zelensky belongs to. The incident happened at a council meeting with his colleagues. Video show Batrin arguing with people inside the room about the local budget when he casually drops three grenades at his feet in close proximity to other people. 
One person was killed and another 25 were injured, but Tareen was among the wounded as well, and authorities say that they found a suicide note during a search of his home. But Tareen has been arrested and charged with terrorism. He will remain in pre-trial detention. Also, over the week, a recording device was found hidden in a room that was potentially used by General Valery Zeluzhny, the commander-in-chief of the Ukrainian Armed Forces, this is what was confirmed by the Security Services of Ukraine, the SBU, who has launched an investigation regarding the device. However, Ukranska Pravda claims that the recording device was found in the general's dedicated office, as well as some devices being found in his employees' offices. Those claims have not been commented on. Moving on to Russia, Russia's 2024 presidential election is said to be held in March. Current President Vladimir Putin has announced that he will be running for re-election and he is expected to win overwhelmingly. Putin will once again be running as an independent, but he will be supported by United Russia and a just Russia for truth. United Russia is effectively run by Putin, and the party really only exists to support him. Many other candidates have announced their candidacy as well. The Russian Communist Party has nominated Nikolai Karitonov to run against Putin. Karitonov is a 75-year-old member of the State Duma for Krasnodar Krai. He has also run against Putin in 2004. Then he received 13.7% of the vote to Putin's 71.3%. The Liberal Democratic Party has nominated Leonid Sletsky, unfortunate last name, who is also the member of the State Duma for Moscow Oblast and was also on Russia's negotiating team after the invasion of Ukraine. The last candidate, who I don't expect will get many votes, is Igor Gherkin, who is running as an independent. Gherkin is a veteran of the FSB also former defense minister of the Donetsk People's Republic from 2014 to 2015, and is also the founder of the Club of Angry Patriots. We have talked about him a few times in the past on this show. He has been a popular voice criticizing Russia's conduct of the war in Ukraine, which is why he is currently in jail awaiting trial. And to be clear, he is very much a supporter of the war, just not how Russia is going about fighting it. Also this week, former local politician and journalist Yekaterina Dunsova was barred from running by the Central Election Commission, claiming that they found over 100 errors in her candidacy documents. Russia is routinely accused of finding excuses to sideline political opponents to Putin. Dunsova is pro-democracy and is publicly anti-war when speaking in the context of the invasion of Ukraine. Now, looking at the war... On the 17th, pro-Ukrainian forces crossed the border and engaged Russian troops in the village of Terebreno in Belgorod Oblast. Ukraine's military intelligence claims that, quote, a platoon stronghold of Russian troops was destroyed, end quote. It wasn't stated which unit entered Russia, but it's likely that it was one of Ukraine's Russian volunteer anti-Putin units. Also, looking at the war, conversations regarding Ukraine's manpower issues are still being had. During a press conference on the 19th, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said that in November he ordered General Zeluzhny and Defense Minister Rostam Uremov to present a new mobilization plan for the military. Zelensky says that the military has requested a mobilization of 450,000 to 500,000 men, which he says will cost about $13.4 billion. He said that this has not yet been approved as there are some issues that need to be worked out first. He also confirmed that he would not support the conscription of women. Now, moving on to the Indo-Pacific region, looking at China, the PLA Navy reportedly launched its fourth Type 75 landing helicopter dock. The name of the ship is not yet known. 
Type 75 amphibious assault ships will be crucial to China's invasion of Taiwan if it does actually happen. However, China will need to augment their navy with hundreds of modified civilian vessels if it wants its assault on Taiwan to be a success. Eight Type 75s are planned. Three are currently in service. Moving on to the Northern Mariana Islands, the U.S. military is ramping up construction on an airfield on the Pacific island of Tinian in the Northern Mariana Islands. The airfield was once used by the U.S. Army Air Corps B-29 bombers in the Second World War to fight the Japanese. General Kenneth Wilsbach, the commander of Pacific Air Forces, says that extensive progress will be made in clearing the jungle away from the airfield in the coming months. Tinian is about 200 kilometers north of Guam, and reusing the airfield is part of the Agile Combat Employment Strategy to position aircraft in as many places as possible to mitigate the effects of enemy missile strikes in the event of a conflict. The Northern Mariana Islands is an unincorporated U.S. territory. This year, the U.S. also secured airfield access in the Philippines and Papua New Guinea. Moving on to Central Asia and the Middle East, looking at Syria, airstrikes have been going on pretty steady in Syria, Israeli airstrikes. Uh, over the month, Israeli airstrikes have hit Damascus Airport and Zayadah Zanab at least three times. We don't really have a lot of details on that, but Israel routinely targets assets of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, which comes from Iran. Looking at the Israel-Hamas war, we have reported casualties. Looking at Gaza, 20,075 people killed, 53,320 injured. Looking at Israel, you have 1,427 killed, 8,788 injured. Casualties inside Gaza during the Israeli operation, you have 144 killed, 559 wounded. Looking at the West Bank, you have 303 killed, 3,456 injured. Lebanon, you have 146 killed. Syria, you have 40 killed. And Egypt, you have nine injured. That gives us a total of 21,973 killed and 65,572 people reportedly injured. According to the Committee to Protect Journalists, the number of journalists and media workers that have been killed in this war is 68. The vast majority, 61, were Palestinians that were killed inside Gaza. Four Israelis and three Lebanese journalists have been killed as well. One of the latest journalists to be killed was Samir Abukada of Al Jazeera. He was killed by an Israeli airstrike on the 15th. Also on December 15th, Israeli police were seen beating Andulu English reporter Mustafa Harouf in the West Bank. The beating was broadcasted live on CNN Turk. Multiple officers were seen kicking, punching, choking, and hitting Mr. Harouf with the muzzles of the rifles, which if you've ever been hit with one of those, it doesn't feel too great. The IDF has uncovered a Hamas tunnel that they say is 400 meters from the Erez border crossing in Gaza. The IDF says that this is the largest tunnel they found at four kilometers or 2.5 miles long. Also, heavy fighting and clearance operations are still ongoing in Gaza City and Jabalia in the north. In the south, heavy fighting is still ongoing in Khan Yunus, and also Israeli troops are about a few kilometers away from the Rafah border crossing with Egypt. And in central Gaza, some areas have been placed under evacuation directives in preparation for the expansion of Israeli operations in the area. The Times of Israel is claiming through unnamed Palestinian sources that the Palestinian Authority will initially be able to reactivate 3,500 of its 15,000 former security forces before Hamas took over the Gaza Strip in 2006. This number was reached by a Palestinian Authority assessment 
recently conducted as the U.S. is advocating for the PA to be able to take control over Gaza instead of the Israeli security establishment after the war. Border clashes between Israel and Lebanese Hezbollah have been ongoing this entire time. Israel has threatened the Lebanese government to negotiate with Hezbollah on the withdrawal of positions south of the Latani River, or DIDF will launch a military operation in Lebanon to force Hezbollah to withdraw. UN Security Council Resolution 1701 ended the 2006 Lebanon War, and one provision was that no Hezbollah forces are to be south of the river. And also a drone attack on December 16th killed one soldier and wounded two others in the community of Margaliat. That came from Hezbollah, and that soldier that was killed was Reserve Warrant Officer Yeshekel Azaria, 53 of the 8th Armored Brigade's 129th Battalion. As of right now, over 100 hostages are still being held inside Gaza. You probably know that over 100 hostages have also been released so far. This includes three Americans. Additionally, multiple hostages have been found deceased inside Gaza, and multiple hostages have also been rescued. Elia Toledano, 28 years old, was found dead by Israeli troops of Unit 504 of the Military Intelligence and the 551st Brigade. The ceasefire deal with Hamas is what saw the majority of these hostages being released. A separate deal between Hamas and the Egyptian government also saw a number of non-Israeli hostages being released as well, mostly Thai and Filipino citizens. In recent days during combat operations in the Shajaya neighborhood of Gaza City, Israeli forces accidentally shot and killed three Israeli hostages. They are Yotam Haim and Alon Shamiz, both kidnapped from Kibbutz Kafar Aza on October 7th, and Samir Talaka, kidnapped from Kibbutz near Am on the 7th as well. The three men had managed to escape Hamas custody at some point before they were shot. They were exiting from a building when a soldier reported them as suspicious. They were shirtless, and one of them was carrying a white flag. That soldier reportedly thought it was an attempt by Hamas to lure his unit into a trap, so he opened fire, immediately killing two of the hostages. The third was hit, but he was able to run back into a building. After trying to shout at the soldiers for help in Hebrew, the third hostage exited the building again, and he was immediately shot by a different soldier. An investigation has been launched, and the IDF has said that these two soldiers were not acting within the rules of engagement. The IDF claims that civilians have not been seen in Shejaya for multiple days, and oftentimes they encounter unarmed Hamas fighters in civilian clothing. The IDF claims that these Hamas fighters will stash weapons in a building, ambush IDF soldiers, and flee into another building unarmed. Apparently, at a different time, soldiers from the unit found buildings with SOS and help three hostages painted on the walls, but they thought the buildings were booby traps, so they did not enter. Israeli security forces have long been accused of being trigger-happy. This incident raises questions as to the rules of engagement for soldiers operating inside Gaza. Since October 17th, there have been at least 102 drone and rocket attacks on U.S. troops in Iraq and Syria. The attacks resumed after the expiration of the ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. The Pentagon has confirmed 66 casualties so far, including 25 TBIs. All 66 have since returned to duty. The U.S. military has launched six response strikes. That sixth response came on December 3rd when U.S. airstrikes in Kirkuk targeted and killed five members of Harakat Hezbollah on Nujaba in Iranian-backed Shia militia. Those militants were preparing to launch rockets at U.S. forces. 
On the day prior, militants with the Islamic resistance of Iraq claimed Iraq had attacked against U.S. forces at Erbil Airport. The U.S. has launched one response for every 17 attacks against its forces in Iraq and Syria. Yemen-based Houthi rebels have continued their activity in the region as well. Last week, Israeli National Security Advisor said that Prime Minister Netanyahu told U.S. President Joe Biden that if the U.S. does not respond soon to Houthi attacks, then Israel will. On December 9th, French Navy frigate Languedoc downed two UAVs within two hours of each other over the southern Red Sea, 110 kilometers from Yemeni city of Al Houdaya. 110 kilometers from the Yemeni city of Al Houdaya. The drones were launched by the Houthis and were heading in the direction of the frigate. On the 11th, Houthi rebels launched missiles and hit MV Strinda in the Bab El Mandeb Strait, causing a fire on board. Strinda is a Norwegian-flagged chemical and oil tanker. UK MTO reports that the Houthis ordered a vessel to change course and head for port in Yemen shortly before the attack. Arleigh Burke-class destroyer USS Mason responded to the distress call. No casualties were reported. On December 15th, the Houthis targeted a Liberian-flagged vessel owned by Apeg Lloyd. The vessel was hit by unknown munitions, but there was no word on casualties. On the 16th, Arleigh Burke-class destroyer USS Kearney was targeted by the Houthis while in the Red Sea. The ship shot down 14 suicide drones, and it took no damage. On December 18th, Houthis launched drones and missiles at Cayman Islands flagged MV Swan Atlantic and hit the ship. USS Kearney responded to the distress call, and at the same time, an explosion hit near MV Clara. There were no reports of damage or casualties for that ship. On today, the 23rd, a commercial vessel was targeted by drones in the Indian Ocean southwest of Varaval, India. The company that operates the ship, Chem Pluto, is owned by Israeli businessman Adano Fair. Israel says that it has reason to believe the drones were launched from Iran and not Yemen. The Pentagon is now saying the same thing. The attack caused an explosion and a fire on the ship, but no casualties. The Pentagon has announced the creation of Operation Prosperity Guardian, which will serve to protect commercial shipping and the freedom of navigation in the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden from the Houthis. The operation will encompass forces from 10 nations under the umbrella of Task Force 153 of the Combined Maritime Forces. The nations taking part in the operation are the U.S., U.K., Canada, Bahrain, Netherlands, Denmark, Norway, Australia, Greece, and Seychelles. The Houthis threatened to target oil fields in Saudi Arabia and the UAE if those countries chose to join the operation. Politico claims that other countries have actually signed on to Prosperity Guardian, but many of them do not want to publicize their involvement. According to Intel Schizo on Twitter, Denmark will send one staff officer. The Netherlands will send two staff officers. Norway will send 10 officers, no ships. Canada will send three officers, no ships. Australia will send 11 officers, no ships. The UK and Greece will both send one ship, and the U.S. Navy will provide seven ships. The operation already looks like it may be falling apart, though. Italy, France, and Spain initially signed on to the task force. Italy and France said that they would send one ship each, and it was believed that Spain would send one as well. Now all three countries have publicly exited Prosperity Guardian. Italy said that it would deploy a ship to the region that will respond to requests from Italian ship owners, but it will not partake in the operation. France said that it will not join an operation in which its ships are under French command, and Spain said that it will not join an operation that isn't NATO-led or coordinated by the EU. To be clear, there are at least seven operations 
ongoing in the region with the same goal as Prosperity Guardian, and all three of those countries take part in one or more of those operations. 11 companies have stopped shipping in the Red Sea and have rerouted traffic due to Houthi activity in the region. This includes nine out of the 10 largest shipping companies in the world, representing 85% of global shipping capacity. Those companies are British oil company BP, French CMA, CGM, Norwegian oil company Equinor, Belgian tanker firm Euronav, Taiwanese company Evergreen, which has also stopped accepting Israeli cargo for the time being, Norwegian tanker company Frontline, German container company Hapeg Lloyd, Danish company Maersk, Swiss-based company MSC, Hong Kong-based OOCL, and Taiwanese Yangmin Marine Transport. Got a Naval Forces posture update in the region. Thank you again to Intel Schizo on Twitter for his infographics. The Israeli Navy has three corvettes near the Sinai Peninsula. The Gerald R. Ford Carrier Strike Group has been extended by Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin into 2024. The CSG has been deployed for 7.5 months and has now been extended on that deployment three times. The Dwight D. Eisenhower Carrier Strike Group and the Bataan Amphibious Readiness Group are both in the Gulf of Aden. China has three ships in the Gulf of Aden as well. Iran has two ships in the Red Sea. The British Royal Navy has four ships near Bahrain, and the U.S. Navy has 12 ships in the Persian Gulf and the Gulf of Oman. We will take a quick break, and we'll be right back. All right, and we are back with the America's Bulletin from the Borderlands released on the 15th. We cover the border dispute between Venezuela and Guyana and a former U.S. ambassador caught spying for Cuba for four decades. And just a quick note, the Bulletin will not release on January 1st. We are taking a break for the holidays. The next release for the Bulletin will be on January 15th. Looking at Ecuador, British businessman and former UK counsel for Ecuador, Colin Armstrong, was kidnapped on December 16th from his home in the town of Baba. He was soon rescued by government forces on the road to Manabi. Nine people were arrested in connection to the kidnapping. We got a presidential race update for the U.S. These polls are averages from 538. Biden's approval is at 39. That is up 1%. His disapproval is at 55%. That remains the same from our last episode. Trump's favorability is at 42. His unfavorability is at 53. Both of those remain the same. Looking at the Democrat primary, Biden is at 66. That is down one point. Miriam Williamson is at eight. She is up one point. And Congressman Dean Phillips is at 5%. He is up one point as well. Looking at the Republican primary, Trump is at 63%. He's up four points. DeSantis is at 12, he's down one, and Nikki Haley is at 11. She is down one as well, although she is pretty close to DeSantis. And this is our last big story for the episode on December 19th in a 4-2-3 vote. The Colorado Supreme Court ruled that former U.S. President Donald Trump cannot appear on the state's primary ballot. Of course, Trump is running for the Republican ticket. Additionally, the Colorado Secretary of State cannot count write-ins for Trump as part of the court decision. The reasoning was a clause in the 14th Amendment that bars anyone who has taken an oath 
to defend the Constitution of the U.S. and later committed or incited insurrection against the United States for holding public or military office. The court claims that he incited insurrection on January 6, 2021. That ruling does not go into effect until January 4, 2024, pending Trump's appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. This is the first time in U.S. history that a former president has been barred from appearing on a ballot. There are efforts to remove Trump from the ballot as well in other states. In California, Lieutenant Governor Eleni Konalakas sent a letter to Secretary of State Shirley Weber to explore, quote, all legal options, end quote, for removing Trump from the ballot. Weber said that her office will explore those options, but it will take a, quote, wait and see approach. Weber has until December 28th to certify the list of candidates from the primary ballot, which will be held in March. A group in Michigan has already tried to get Trump removed from their ballot prior to the Colorado Supreme Court decision. The Michigan Court of Appeals shot down their attempt by saying that a state court did not have the legal standing to make a decision regarding eligibility for the presidential primary. That group has since sent a letter to the Michigan Supreme Court using the Colorado decision as justification for their efforts. Shanna Bellows, the Secretary of State for Maine, said that she would rule on challenges to Trump's eligibility after the Colorado case is concluded, which her office expects will happen in the next week. Two lawsuits have also been filed to keep Trump off the ballot in New York, and there are also open cases in Arizona, Rhode Island, Minnesota, Alaska, Nevada, New Jersey, New Mexico, Oregon, South Carolina, Texas, West Virginia, Virginia, Wisconsin, Wyoming, and Vermont. Some of those lawsuits have been publicly supported by multiple elected officials. And in response to all this, Aaron Bernstein of Pennsylvania, Corey McGar of Arizona, and Charlize Bird of Georgia, all three elected representatives in their respective state legislators, announced a joint effort to get President Joe Biden removed from their state's ballots. They say that Biden should be removed from the ballot due to his poor handling of the situation on the southern border and, quote, his alleged corrupt family business dealings with China, end quote. That is all I have for you guys right now. Again, I hope everybody has a good Christmas and great holidays and a lot of good times with their family. And uh, Happy New Year if you guys don't hear from me until then. I want to thank you all for supporting this podcast. Of course, it means a lot to me. You can find this podcast on your favorite apps. That includes Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen, we're there. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Analyze Educate. That is all one word. We are also on Telegram, the same name. Please consider supporting us again. Patreon, Ko-Fi, Substack. You can find all those links in the show notes below. Be sure to leave us a five-star rating on the app used to listen to this podcast. That helps us out a lot as well. And I will see you guys soon.